Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. You've probably heard the story. It goes something like this. Lady sitting at a stoplight behind a guy. There's a guy in front of her at the stoplight. Police officer pulls up behind her. Light changes from red to green, but the guy in front doesn't move. The lady honks her horn. He still doesn't move. She lays on her horn louder. He's still not moving. Now she's screaming. She's beating the dashboard with her fist. She's cussing. She sticks her finger out the window. She's laying on the horn. The police officer notices on the back of her car, there's a bunch of Jesus stickers. You know, like WWJD, what would Jesus do? And my boss is a Jewish carpenter. And in case of rapture, this car will be empty. And so the police officer switches on his lights, hits the horn, pulls the lady over. She's still out of her mind. And she goes, you can't pull me over for yelling at somebody about not going through the light. He said, oh, I didn't. But I saw your stickers and I saw your behavior. Assumed the car was stolen. (laughs) License and registration, please. You know, the moral of the story is don't be a hypocrite. And uh, clearly, truthfully, We've got plenty of hypocrites in the church without me being another one. But here's my problem. Sometimes, even when I'm trying not to be a hypocrite, I can still act hypocritical. I don't mean to. Truthfully, sometimes I blow my cool and ruin my witness, uh, say things I shouldn't say, do things I shouldn't do, wind up hating myself for it. What do I do when I do those kinds of things? What do I do with my failure? Because the truth is, I fail. You know, I get it. Holiness is our objective, and I'm called to be the nature of Jesus. But I'm a work in progress, you know. I'm not there yet. God's been working on me for 40-something years. It doesn't seem like I'm, I'm, I'm where I want to be, but I'm, I'm in process. And that means that in the meantime, I'm going to fail. So what do I do with my failure? Let's go to John chapter 13. This is John's version of the Lord's Supper. And the crazy thing about John's version of the Lord's Supper is that John doesn't give a version of the Lord's Supper. You're like, what? Yeah, the whole context is the Lord's Supper. And everything that's going on here is that would be identified as having happened during the Lord's Supper, but for whatever reason, John doesn't even talk about the Lord's Supper. Now, the other three Gospels do, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. Um, in fact, for example, here's Mark 14, 22. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. But, you know, John skips all that. And I I look at that and I kind of scratch my head. I go, why would he skip the Lord's Supper? Because it does seem to be a really important part of the Christian life. So why would John skip it? It seems really important. Well, you have to remember John's purpose, okay? The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we call those the Gospels, plural. Not to be confused with the Gospel, singular. I know sometimes that can be confusing. The Gospel 
It's God's redemptive plan for this earth. It's the good news that God loves you and has a plan for your life. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gospel message. But the first four books of the New Testament are called Gospels, plural, and each one of them gives an account of Jesus' life and ministry from a uniquely different perspective and normally to a uniquely different uh, audience. And so from that, we get a composite look of who Jesus was and what he taught and what he was all about. For example, Matthew quotes all kinds of Old Testament in his gospel. And from that, we know Matthew was writing to the Jews and his purpose was to, uh, to, to teach them that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. He was the Messiah. Now, Mark quotes almost no, none of the Old Testament. He has half as many quotes as Matthew does. He doesn't allude to the genealogies at all because Mark is written to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. And his gospel is very terse and quick and to the point, dynamic. I always say Mark's gospel is the Hemingway version of the gospel. It's, it's quick and it's less words, more action, very action-oriented. And Mark's purpose was to demonstrate Jesus was a servant. And then there's Luke, Dr. Luke, the physician. It's a very warm and intimate human look at Jesus. You know, he's got stuff in there about the nativity and things that Mary told him that she treasured in her heart and those kinds of things. And from that, Luke's purpose can can clearly be seen to demonstrate that Jesus was the Son of Man. But John is different from the other three. In fact, they call the other three the synoptics, which means the same or similar. But John is different because that wasn't John's purpose. Uh, if you want to know his purpose, you go to John chapter 20, verse 30. He says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples. Now look at this, and you can underline this part, which are not written in this book. So John's purpose wasn't to give a comprehensive chronological look at the life of Jesus. That was never his purpose. You see, John's was the last gospel written. He obviously had access to the other three. And so when he wrote his gospel, his purpose was uh, initially just to fill in the blanks with those stories that were left out in the other three. And we see this in John 13. For example, uh, at the Lord's Supper, John gives the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And that's not in any of the other gospels. But his purpose, more to the point, is verse 31. But these things have been written, and here it is, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And, and the whole thing is about the divinity of God. He opens with that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He wants us to know Jesus was God. And even in, in, in concurrent with that, he also wanted us to believe. Look, that believing you may have life in his name. He wants everybody to come to embrace Christ by faith. And so when it comes to the passage of the Lord's Supper, he doesn't regurgitate information that everybody in the church would have already had, which is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Instead of focusing on the details of what Jesus did with the bread and the wine, he focuses on the people that were in the room. And more specifically, he focuses on their failure. And this is what's so helpful to me and hopefully helpful to you. Because in the process of focusing on their failure, he gives us insights as to what we can do when we fail. And so the first thing that I, I, I sort of leverage out of this, that I can lift out of this is, we all fail. 
I mean, when you begin to read John, you, you realize he really be, parks on the fact that Judas betrayed Christ. Look at uh, verse 2 of John 13, during the supper. And by the way, um, it's difficult to translate that little phrase, during the supper. If you're reading the King James, it says after the supper. And the reason for that is it's a participle that's in the past tense. And so the meaning of the word had to do with becoming. I don't want to drag this out, but, but the idea is that it was while, during, or immediately after. And so the question was, when did he wash the disciples' feet? Because normally they would wash the feet at the beginning of some ceremony or celebration. And clearly this happened either toward the end or after it was over. And during that time, look, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. What do you notice about that? Normally when he talks about Peter, what does he say? He calls him Peter, Cephas, Simon, the rock, right? But when he talks about Judas, it's Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. In fact, twice he identifies Judas' father as Simon in this text. Why does he do that? You know, I thought about that, and I thought, why drag poor Simon into this? I mean, you know, Simon probably did the best he could, and Judas turned out to be a Judas anyway, right? Why drag Simon in? And then I realized, whenever I got into a lot of trouble when I was a little kid, mom always used all three of my names, right? Like, I'd do something bad, and she would stand at the door and go, William Herbert, die! You get in here right now! I don't know why she had to use all three of my names, you ever do that? Uh, maybe it's because there may be some other little kid named Billy running around outside and uh, she wanted to make sure that they knew. And it seems like we do that, right? The bad guys always get called by all their names. John Wesley Harden, Lee Harvey Oswald, John Wilkes Booth, right? Maybe that's what's going on. I think probably it's to more clearly identify this Judas as apart from all the other Judases. There was actually another Judas on the team, and, and they, you know, they identify him at one point as Judas not Iscarius. Um, bummer of a, a first name to have right at that moment in history, first century. Jude, in fact, Jesus had a stepbrother named Judas who they called Jude to keep from confusing the identity, and he wrote a book in the New Testament. But at any rate, uh, he, he sort of drills down on him and he gives this detailed depiction of the washing of the feet, but then he's right back to Judas. Look at verse 18. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. You know, John totally skipped the Lord's Supper. In all the other accounts, this part of the story happened after the Lord's Supper. And then look at verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in his spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And so his focus is clearly on the room and on the people in the room. And when he said, one of you is going to betray me, what happened to the rest of the guys in the room? You see, a shudder went through the room. These guys didn't know that Judas had already made his deal. They had no idea uh, the extent of betrayal that was about to occur. And they immediately, when he said, one of you, they immediately began to begin defensive. Not me, not me. It's not going to be me. No way I would do it. You know, you might do it. I'm not going to do it. And, you know, Luke gives us another insight. He says that that denial degenerated into another argument about who was the greatest. And I, I can feel it begin to happen, you know. It's not me. I'm too close to Jesus. Well, I'm closer to Jesus than you. No, you're not. 
I'm closer to Jesus than you. Well, Peter's closer than you. What about John? He's closer than you. Well, maybe Peter and John. Well, I think G- Peter's the best. No, John is. John loved Jesus. He's the disciple Jesus loved. And you can just feel the whole thing kind of come unravel because everybody was afraid that it might be them. You know, what's that old saying? Methinks thou dost protest too much. And when you begin to protest too much, maybe you're aware of your own thing. And they were still talking about this as they left the room and headed toward the Mount of Olives. Mark 14, 26 helps us with this. It says, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Look at verse 27. And Jesus said to them, and I I emphasize this. I made it in all caps so you could see it. It's not in all caps in the Bible. You will all fall away. How many of the disciples fell away? Judas? No. All of them. All of them fell away. Because it's written, I'll strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So why do we know so much about Judas? And why do we know so much about Peter? You know, why does it always land back on Peter? Peter was the one that denied Jesus, right? No, the Bible says they all did. Well, why Peter? Well, I think it's because Peter refused to believe it. Look at what he says in verse 37 of John 13. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And, P- and Jesus replied and said, hey, bro, no offense, but you're not going to make it through the night. You know, Bef- before the, the rooster crows three times, watch, Jesus answered, you'll lay, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Before this night is over, and, and by the way, though, I used to always think that roosters crowed the first thing in the morning when they saw the sun. But having lived with roosters because my wife is a chicken lady, they crow all the time. <laughs> they crow all the time. They'll crow in the middle of the night. You'll come out at four in the morning. It's not sun up. And you'll hear the rooster in, in, in the chicken coop crowing. So it's like, hey, Peter, before sun up, you're already going to fail. And you're not going to fail once. You're going to fail three times. And that's exactly what happened. And we don't have time to get to all of that and unpack all that this morning. And we're going to get to it as we walk through this text expositionally. We're going to see Peter's failure. But but trust me, it happened, right? But it didn't just happen to Peter because they all failed too. And you know what I take from that? If, and, and, you know, you think about Peter, and you think Peter is sort of the representative of the whole, and he's the guy that uh, we all kind of look to, you know, uh, when we're uh, somewhat insecure in a moment, we don't know what to do, we look at Peter, and Peter's got the, the guts and the glory, and he's going to be the guy that's going to be standing when everybody else fails. And then here we go, Peter fails. That must have just sent a ripple through all of the disciples when that occurred. But, you know, if you look at the profoundly insightful side of that, if these guys failed, what does that tell you about me? I'm, I'm going to fail too. So here's the question. What do I do with my failure? And, and here's, here's an insight I want you to understand. The nature of the relationship determines the outcome of the failure. You see, if they all failed, then why do we treat Judas differently than all the other guys? And I suspect that it's because we think that Judas' failure was worse than the other guy's failures. Because Judas betrayed Jesus, but all the other ones denied Jesus. Is betrayal worse than denial, or isn't denial kind of the same thing as betrayal? And doesn't the Bible say sin is sin regardless of 
of what sin it is, that there's no sin greater than the other sin. And so I'm like, why are we so hard on Judas? And here's, here's what I came to see as I really thought about this and prayed this thing. I, I, the, the nature of the relationship, not the nature of the failure, is what changes the outcome of the failure. Now, I know that's a lot of words, so let me say it again. The nature of the relationship, not the, rela- the nature of the failure, is what changes the outcome of the failure. So we think that Judas was broken permanently because of the nature of his failure. That's not true. Judas was broken permanently because of the nature of his relationship. And let me show you this. There were 12 guys in that room, right? And they were all very different, different personalities, different backgrounds, you know, and, and opposite ends of the spectrum. Simon the Zealot was there. The Zealots hated Rome. Matthew was there. He was a tax collector. He worked for Rome. And you had different personalities. You got Peter, who's bold and outgoing and sharp and, and prophetic. And then you had John, who's loving and compassionate and merciful and all these other things. So you got these, all these different personalities. But there were really only two kinds of people in that room. There were 12 guys in that room, and there were only two kinds of people. 11 were saved, and one was lost. I mean, look back at the foot washing, John 13, 10. Jesus said to him, He who's bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. Let me remind you of the context. Jesus starts to wash the disciples' feet. Peter says, You're not washing my feet. You're too great to wash my feet. And he says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, I have no part with you. And Peter's like, Well, okay, then wash all of me. And Jesus said, Look, I don't need to wash all of you because you've been washed. And he's speaking metaphorically about the nature of relationship, forgiveness, and sin, and redemption. When we place our faith in Christ, our sins are forgiven. We've been washed. But then we walk around this dirty world, and sin begins to accumulate and stick to us. And so we have to stay current with that forgiveness, and we're constantly going back to God. Forgive me for what I did, for what I said, for how I acted, for, for the life I've lived. And, and it's not that I'm, I'm dirty. It's just that My feet get dirty and I need to stay clean. And he said, you're clean because you've been cleansed. That's talking about redemption. But then he says at the end of that, look at this, but not all of you. There was a person in the room who wasn't clean. Not only were his feet dirty, his life was still dirty because one of the disciples wasn't saved. Look, verse 11, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Eleven had a relationship with Christ. One of them didn't. And and how sad is that, that you spent three and a half years with Jesus, and you saw everything he did, and you heard everything that he taught, and yet you still didn't know him. And yet I've got to tell you, there are people like that in churches all over the place today. Sitting in a church doesn't make you a Christian. Following Jesus as a disciple didn't make Judas one. Eleven had a relationship with Christ, one didn't. And the relationship changed the outcome. You see, we all fail. But if we fail without Christ, that failure is final. Judas' failure shattered him. But if we fail with Christ, failure is never final. Peter's failure refined him. And so here's the principle. In Christ, you can begin again. I mean, if you track this thing down, and again, we don't have time to do all this. At the very end of the Gospel of John, and we'll get to it later, but let me just give you a snippet of it. The whole thing ends in a conversation between Peter and Jesus. Remember, Peter's the one that failed three times that night. In that critical moment when Jesus needed him the most, he was, he was uh, missing in action. 
And, and three times in that moment, that last conversation of John, Peter asked Jesus, I mean, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? And Peter kept saying, Lord, you know I love you. Lord, you know I love you. Lord, you know I love you. Why did he ask him three times? Well, because he had denied him three times. And he's giving him a chance to begin again. And I think that's the power of this whole thing. This is the point of all this book. Even when I fail, the sin that was forgiven stays forgiven, and the sin that needs forgiveness gets forgiven. No matter what you've done, you can begin again. So you stop hating yourself for what you did, and you stop hating God for how you think He's making you feel. And you just go to Him, and you tell Him you're sorry, and you begin again. Because in Christ, failure's never final. Isn't that good news? And that's why John focused on the people in the room and not the events of the room. Because what he wanted you to know was Jesus is the Son of God, and he wanted you to know Jesus. And he wanted you to know that even when you fail, you can still begin again. And I want you to hear that this morning. Would you pray with me right now? You may have failed recently, and you may feel like a failure. You're struggling with that. Would you just... Go to Jesus and tell Him you're sorry. Begin again. Father, thank You for this Word. Um, because we fail. I fail. And when we fail, we hate ourselves. And sometimes we can even turn that hatred toward You because we don't like the way we feel. And in our need to justify our own actions, we can look for other people to blame. But it's on us. We fail. We're sorry. Restore us. Let us begin again. Father, I pray for those that need to receive the forgiveness that you've already given, that they would receive it right now. But Father, the principle is so clear here that the outcome of our failure isn't determined by the nature of our failure. It's determined by the nature of the relationship. And so I pray for those who are outside the relationship with Jesus Christ in this moment that they would just give their life fully over to you. God, I need you. Come into my heart. Change me forever. And let me start fresh. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his lordship over our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.